Well, I have um, gone high-tech on you all. So we have a couple of slides, and when Gabe gets back there, we're going to put the first one up, and uh, you're going to follow along. So turn with me to uh, Isaiah chapter 13. Can you believe it? We've done 12 chapters of the book of Isaiah, and we haven't even started the book of Isaiah. We've done the first 12 chapters, plus we've done chapter 36, 37, 38, and 39. Now, this is little. I get it. This is little. You're not going to be able to see this very well, but we're going to move on to slides. This just gives you a little bit of Israel and Judah in Isaiah's days. Look, there's Judah. Look, there's Israel, right? And we're going to talk about these folks here, these cities here. We're going to talk about Moab and Edom and down here in Philistia and some other places down here in the uh, Edom. And what we're doing now is we're going to do 10 chapters. Can you hardly believe this? 10 chapters. you'll, You'll believe it when you see it, right? But we're going to do chapter 13 through 23. 13 through 23 of the book of Isaiah. And if you need a Bible... Uh, right? We have some back there, Gabe. So if you need a Bible, raise your hand. Gabe will get it to you. You're going to want to follow along. I had a coach one time that I coached with. I can't believe this is the second time he's made the sermon. His name was Wally English. If this is going out, hi, Wally. And Wally English uh, was the coach of Dan Marino here in Pitt. And uh, he also coached Dan Marino at the Miami Dolphins. And then he joined us uh, uh, at the University of Hawaii, and uh, so I was able to coach under him. But one of the things that Wally did that made him so successful is he repeated over and over and over and over again the plays so that nobody would ever forget them. He, he did it so much, you almost every day when we went into the meeting, even me, one of the coaches would go, hmm. Man, Wally, I heard that before, but I didn't say it. I just let it go. But boy, did they know the offense because they worked with the plays. They didn't just go over them a couple times or take them back to their room. We, we studied them with Coach English, and I just feel like here in Second and First Kings and now uh, uh, Isaiah, this is something you have to work with. If you don't work with it, uh, I, you'll forget it, but if you do work with it, I think what happens to you is your faith just blooms, just blooms. And so I want to just go over a couple dates. If you haven't been traveling with us, it's okay. I'm going to give you a couple. I'll just keep those up there for right now. But here are the dates that you must know. We just got done with the first and second kings. You know that, right? Uh, first and second kings, the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah. Israel's the 10 tribes to the north. Judah's the two tribes to the south, and the kingdom divided. There was a united kingdom, but in 931 B.C., write that down, 931 B.C., the kingdom divided. The 12 tribes divided. And you see the northern kingdom there, Israel, and you see the southern kingdom there, Judah. Okay? And that was around 931 B.C. But you need to also know this date. There was this, hit the slide for me, will you please? Hit the next one. Uh, this uh, empire called the Assyrian Empire. Uh, They came to power, uh, and um, in the 700s BC, uh, as it pertains to us, this Assyrian Empire went all the way down. You see where Jerusalem is up there? 
Okay, right above Jerusalem, they went all the way down and they took out the northern kingdom of Israel. They took out the northern kingdom of Israel because the northern kingdom of Israel didn't obey God, didn't obey uh, the blessings of Deuteronomy. If you obey me, you'll be blessed. If you don't obey me, you won't be blessed, right? And they, they did some horrific things. And if you haven't been with us, I mean, they did some horrific things nationally here. So uh, Assyrian Empire, 722 B.C., you can find that in 2 Kings, right around chapter 17, 18, etc. That's around 722 B.C., and then guess what this Assyrian army did? It went right down to the gates of Jerusalem in 701 B.C., got right on the gates of Jerusalem and taunted the people of Jerusalem. They're getting ready to take Jerusalem, but by God's miracle, they were beaten back. They were beaten back, and uh, they did not take Judah. That's important. That was right around 701 B.C. Now listen. Now go fast forward. Write this down. I'm telling you, if you know this, it's going to make you feel way better when you read the Old Testament. It'll orient you. Uh, Hit the next slide, please. Babylon. So Babylon, okay, see, that came into power. And what you need to know is that Babylon then came and uh, they, in 586 B.C., wiped out the southern kingdom. And they actually came in three waves, 605 B.C., 589, I think, or maybe it's 598. I get my numbers mixed up. Whatever, three waves. But then in 586 B.C., they finally destroyed Israel, and they took Israel, the Israeli, the Jews captive into Babylon. Remember that? 586 BC? Everybody say it. Okay, now why am I doing that for you? Here's why. Because Isaiah, who you're studying, this is important. If you don't get this, you'll never get any of what we're going to talk about tonight. Isaiah, who's writing this book under the inspiration of God, he uh, prophesied from the time of around 740 BC to around 687 B.C., which means, 687 B.C., listen, which means he wasn't alive during the time of the Babylonian captivity. You get it? You understand that? (laughs) But he's going to prophesy all about it. And here's something else you need to know. Do you know God made a covenant, an everlasting covenant with uh, uh, King David? It's in 2 Samuel 7. You need to know it. And the line of David comes through which tribe? Say it. Judah. The line of David comes through uh, Judah, and that's the southern kingdom. Sorry, it's not up there. <laughs> but that's, it's the southern kingdom. Now, that's important. Why? Because who is going to come from the tribe of Judah and sit on the, king, or the, uh, the throne forever? Jesus. So now, look, that gets me all the way to chapter 13. First five chapters are about what uh, uh, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom are doing that's upsetting God. (laughs) Chapter 6 is Isaiah meeting God, right? And chapter 7 through 12 is more of why they're being judged, but also in chapter 7 through 12, you get some really famous Christmas. I joke about that. We all pull them out at Christmas time. Uh, 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 prophecies of the coming Messiah, chapter 7 there, the Emmanuel prophecy, chapter 9, the government will be on their sho- his shoulders, remember that one, that, you know that, and uh, chapter 11, of course, 
the reign of Jesse's offspring. So anyway, we're now in uh, chapter 13. And chapter 13 through 23 uh, is a... um, is a, or, or, uh, about 10 proclamations or burdens. They call them burdens. They're being called burdens. They're a burden on Isaiah because he's got to say them. And they're prophecies against, go back to number one, please. They're prophecies against all the group that surround Israel and Judah. Why? And especially Judah. Why? This is important for you to know for your Bible reading. If you don't get this, I mean... <laughs> You just open up Isaiah and go, eh, okay, whatever. I mean, you go, you know, day by day in your two-year Bible reading plan, and you just say, what is this all about? But if you know this, think about this. All of those countries were doing something against God's people, and what did God have to do? He had to get his Messiah, or the Messiah, his son Jesus Christ, through the line of Judah. So anytime that people would come against, they were threatening God's plan. Of course, God wasn't threatened by it, but you know, to us, it looked threatening, or to humans, get it? And so for 13 through 23, we're going to study the oracles of God against the nations. Got it? That's what we're doing. I hope I've said it good for you. Like I said, Olivia's nervous. She doesn't think I can be done in time for Al's Cone Zone, but we're going to try, okay? She's been texting me all afternoon. How many chapters? How many chapters? Okay, so here we go. Uh, I'll read just a little bit. We're not going to read all of this. I'm gonna, you're going to want to go back and read this because there are some fascinating things in these chapters, man. We're starting, I'll, I'll read the first few verses of chapter 13, then I'll pray again if you don't mind. Verse 1, the burden against Babylon, which Isaiah, what does Isaiah mean? Yahweh saves, right? The Lord saves. The son of Amaz saw. He saw this burden, this vision, this prophecy that was given to him was a burden. Lift up a banner on the high mountain. Raise your voice to them. Uh, Wave your hand that they may enter the gates of the nobles. I have commanded my sanctified ones. I have also called my mighty ones for my anger. Those who rejoice in my exaltation. The noise of a multitude in the mountains, like that of uh, many people, a tumultuous noise of the kingdoms of nations gathered together. Now, this is something I circled. The Lord of hosts musters the army for battle. They come from a far country. Now, I don't even have to tell you, right? The Lord used the enemies as tools to bring judgment on his people. You see that? Do you see how immense, vast, majestic, grand God is? Uh, um, He's so powerful and sovereign. He, He musters the army for battle, and they were enemies of the people of God. I'll tell you who in a minute. From the end of heaven, the Lord and his weapons of indignation to destroy the whole land. Wail, for the day of the Lord is at hand. Now, I'll stop and pray because I want to stop right there and talk to you about that. Okay, so Lord, we need help. We pray, Lord, that you'd give us the words to say that come from heaven, Lord. Tell us what these things mean. And then, Lord, show us as you knit them to our hearts how they work themselves out in 2020, Lord, in a dying and hurting world. Thank you for your help in Jesus' name. 
Amen. So one of the things you have to know about Isaiah is that there's a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. You ever been someplace where there's big mountains? Yeah, you have? And, and, and you see those out in the distance, and the one behind it looks like it's right there with it, when in reality it's, you know, miles and miles away. But when you're certain vistas, uh, and so that's kind of what happens in the book of Isaiah. That's kind of what happens in the book of Isaiah. You have these prophecies near and far, and you're trying to sort out what, what is what. Get what I'm saying? Okay, in this case, there's a principle, right? The day of the Lord. It always speaks of God's judgment. God's judgment. Day of the Lord. God's judgment. You could look up uh, all throughout the Old Testament, it talks about that. And then in a far fulfillment, right, the day of the Lord is kind of, not kind of, it's that time when the Lord is going to pour out his wrath on a Christ-rejecting world. The day of the Lord. The time of Jacob's trouble. The 70th week of Daniel. Or as we like to call it now, the tribulation period, right? Well, here, he's really talking, he's giving a proclamation against Babylon. Now, think about this. Babylon. He's giving a proclamation against Babylon. Because in verse 17, we know it says, Behold, I'm going to stir up the Medes against the people he's talking about. And if you know your history, which I know you all do, the Medes and the Persians defeated Babylon. What chapter of the Bible is that in? Ooh, I've quizzed you. Daniel 5. Daniel 5, right? Remember that? So the Medes and the Persians overtake Babylon. But remember, it hasn't even happened yet. At the time that he's prophesying this, we're a hundred years away before Babylon comes and takes out the northern territory, or excuse me, the southern territory. Get that? And so look what you see here. Look down here in verse 8. Verse 8. I gave it away by taking you to verse 17, but look at this in verse 8. And they'll be afraid. Pangs and sorrows will take hold of them. They'll be in pain as a woman in childbirth. They'll be amazed at one another. Their faces will be like flames. Behold, the day of the Lord. There it is again. Judgment will come. Cruel with both wrath and fierce anger to lay the land desolate, and he'll destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened at its going forth, and the moon will not cause its light to shine. Now look, what are we talking about here? We're talking about in the near fulfillment... Five, um, excuse me, 539, when the Medes and the Persians come, and Daniel 5, take out the Babylonians... But it also has some sort of uh, farther meaning because you can see this, the day of the Lord. You're, you, when you read through this, I bet you were thinking of Matthew 24 when you got to verse 10. The stars of heaven and the constellations will go out or not give light. The sun will be darkened. Remember that? In fact, you can see it in Joel 2.10, Revelation 6. Isaiah 34, you can also see it in Matthew 24, like I said. And so there's this far fulfillment. Now, you know there's several people, and that here's where you need to be a Berean. There's several people uh, in the Christian world who believe when this book is talking about Babylon, it's only talking about the Babylon that we are put up on the screen up here, the one that existed back in the 600s B.C., I happen to not be of that persuasion. I believe there's another Babylon, and it's a, um, uh, it's a city or it's a world system of thinking that always sets itself up against God. And one of the reasons, among lots of them, 
while I believe Babylon doesn't always mean Babylon, is because when you get to the book of Revelation, Babylon's going to fall. And it seems to be, and we're going to talk about this in a month or so, it seems to be that that Babylon is a false system of religion and also maybe even uh, 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 lofty and high um, financial uh, uh, markets and worlds that have kind of run amok now and have gone off the rails. And, uh, but anyway, so you have uh, this Babylon that's sitting out there in the book of Revelation, so what I think is, uh, as you look through the Bible, or what, the way I see it, uh, that Babel, do you remember this, means gateway to God. That's what the word means. It sounds like the Hebrew word confusion, which is balal. Isn't that fascinating? And you remember in Genesis 10 through Genesis 11, right, the Tower of Babel and the, the confusion uh, amongst the societies. Do you remember that? So again, I think... Babylon, by the way, in 1 Peter, where does he say he's writing from? Babylon. He's not really writing from Babylon. He's writing from Rome, most people think. Well, Babylon, like I said, symbolizes this world system. World system. Man, and what does it, what does it really mean, Babylon? It means independence from God. It's a system where you're independent from God. And you see it uh, all uh, throughout the Bible. Uh, uh, all throughout the Bible here. Well, again, in 539 B.C., the Medes captured that city. We see that uh, uh, in verse 17, etc. You go on even and, and look up, um, uh, go, or excuse me, just move over to chapter 14. Look how fast we're going. Isn't this great? This is a theme all throughout the, the theme all throughout the book of Isaiah. There's this announcement announcement or pronouncement or this judgment that's pronounced. And there's always these words kind of, but, yet, still. Because there's always this sliver of hope. Not sliver of hope. There's always this hope that God is going to preserve a believing remnant. People who continue to believe, even it's just a small number. And here, look, he reverts back and he's, uh, Isaiah starts talking about how the Lord's going to have mercy on Jacob, which means uh, the people of God, the Israelites, right? And will still choose Israel and settle them in their own land. Now, you know this, in the near fulfillment, right? Here it comes again. In the near fulfillment, that actually happened. Remember, they were in exile from 586. Jeremiah 23 says they had to be in exile for 70 years. They were. Uh, the Medes and the Persians allowed them to go back and start building their city. They did. But remember what happened now, if you know the history of Israel, right? Um, Israel gets dominated by a whole bunch of different uh, other cultures, and Israel basically gets wiped out as a country or a state, but in uh, the late 1800s, Zionist movement starts bringing uh, is, uh, Jews back into the land and then, of course, uh, advocating for, uh, you know, um, statehood again. And in 1948, Israel comes back and becomes a nation again. So it's amazing. If you read the account of what happened in 1948, it's, it's amazing. It's a miracle. And so um, in the uh, far fulfillment, right, even in the millennial kingdom, it says that uh, uh, Jews will continue to keep coming back to their own land. You know this. 
Well, anyway, the strangers will be joined with them, and they will cling to the house of Jacob. See, strangers, speaking of Gentiles, right? Uh, anyway, uh, in the millennial kingdom. Then, anyway, then people will take them and bring them to their place, and the house of Israel will possess them for servants. And made in the land of the Lord, they will take them captive, whose captives they were, and rule over their oppressors. All right. So now, in verse 3, this actually details the fall of the king of Babylon. How about that? So you got to know this. There's a near fulfillment. It's talking about a king of Babylon. How do you say his name? Nebuchadnezzar, but then it was Belshazzar, however you say it, right? Next king. They're going to talk about this king's fall. That's what Isaiah is talking about, but it has a deeper meaning, so let's look at it. Verse 3, it shall come to pass in the day the Lord gives you rest from your sorrow and from your fear and the hard bondage in which you were made to serve, that you will take up this proverb against the king of Babylon and say, now this little poem right here is a taunt. It's taunting. God through Isaiah is taunting them in, in, in a way. Uh, the, the oppressor has ceased. The golden city has ceased. Uh, the Lord has broken the staff of the wicked there. You see that? And the scepter of the rulers. Think about it. The king's scepter. If you broke the king's scepter, what would happen to you? You'd get smashed yourself. But here, God has uh, broken the scepter, right? And uh, you see, if, as you keep going, look in verse 9. That word is Sheol, the place of the dead. The place of the dead. Also known as Gehenna. Right? In the Greek, hell uh, is not the same. If you need help on that, we'll talk after. Hell is the ultimate final resting place. This here is the place of the dead, the place where Old Testament saints went. Right? You can look it up in Luke 16. Do you remember this? There was a rich man, and there was uh, the poor man Lazarus, and there was a great chasm between the two. The poor man was in uh, Abraham's bosom. The rich man was in Hades or uh, Sheol, the place of the dead. Get it? We'll talk more about that uh, if you want to after. Uh, we'll do a study on that as a matter of fact. But, but for this purposes, hell from beneath is excited about you to meet you at your coming. Look what he's saying to the king of Babylon. You're going to Sheol. God's saying that. You're going to Sheol. You catch this? And what he says here, look at this. And the chief ones of the earth are already there. They're waiting for you. You're going to see them. They're waiting for you down there. They shall speak and say to you, have you become as weak as we, us? Have you become like us? Your pomp is brought down to Sheol. Get it? Down to the place of the dead. And the sound of your stringed instruments and the maggot is spread under you and worms cover you. Now, he goes on and he continues to talk about the king of Babylon, but here's where it gets deep. Some people don't believe this is talking about Satan. I do. Some people believe this is just a continuation of uh, the taunt against the king of Babylon. And oh, by the way, it is that in the uh, near fulfillment. But it's also looking forward, or not looking forward, it's telling you the story of what happened to this beautiful angel who was in charge of worship, who set himself up against God. Let's read it. So how you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer. What does Lucifer mean? It means morning star. Now, 
I've been puzzled by that my whole life as a kid. I didn't really, I was like, why do they call him the morning star? Our Lord and Savior is the, Revelation tells us, bright and morning star. You get it? What is, among other things, what is the uh, evil one? What's the enemy of our souls? What's Satan? A copycat. He, he, he's not original. He's a copycat. He takes what the Lord does and he bends it. And here we serve the bright and morning star. That's us. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You're going to find that out in Revelation. Lucifer here is the morning star. Now, in the near fulfillment, think about it. What he's saying to the king of Babylon is, <laughs> you're going to shine for about as bright or for about as long as the morning lasts. That's what he's saying. Okay? So, O Lucifer, son of the morning, how you're cut down to the ground. You weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. See it? I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I'll also sit on the mount of the congregation, on the far sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. Here it is. Circle it. Here it comes. I will be like the most high. I will be like the uh, most high. Satan is an imitator. You see that? Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. You think we're going to make it? <laughs> 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 13 and 15. Look what it describes here. For uh, verses 13 and through 15. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. He's a imitator. Therefore, it's no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. Wow. Okay, so he's an imitator. He will be like the Most High. But look, you're going to be brought down to Sheol, he says to the king of Babylon. To the lowest depths of the pit, those who see you will gaze at you and consider you, saying, is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world as a wilderness? You see that? And destroyed its cities, who didn't open the house of his prisoners? Well, look down in verse 22. For I will rise up against the, them, says the Lord of hosts, and cut off from Babylon the name and remnant and offspring and posterity, says the Lord. I also make it a possession for the porcupine and marshes of muddy water. I will sweep it with the broom of destruction, says the Lord of hosts. Now that happened to Babylon. Medes and the Persians came, wiped them out. It became very much just kind of wasteland. Do you remember who tried to revive it? Saddam Hussein. He tried to build some stuff in the area of Babylon. And if you look out online now, he, did, he wasn't very successful at it. And it just kind of fizzled out and there's really nothing there anymore. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? Well, okay, go on. Well, it was interesting to me. <clears throat> Didn't seem so much to you, but it is to me. But, but anyway, look in verse 24. The Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, Surely, as I have thought it, so it shall come to pass, and as I have uh, purposed, so it shall stand, that I will break the Assyrian in my land. Now, I'm going to test you. 
from 1 Kings, or excuse me, 2 Kings. Do you remember how the Assyrians were broken in the land of Judah? Well, turn with me to chapter 19. 2 Kings chapter 19. See, this all fits together. You see why Wally English had it right? You have to go over it and go over it and go over it. And when you do, man, it just comes to life. Because in 2 Kings 19, uh, as they get up, listen to this, they get right up to the walls. They have a major army. All they have to do is overrun Jerusalem. It's a done deal. It's over. I mean, if you were watching it, oh, I have something funny to say, but I, I'll get in trouble. It would be like Ohio State playing Michigan. I mean, this, it's over, right? I mean, this is it. They're right there. The greatest army of all time is right there at the gate. Right there at the gate. It's all over. They're taunting them. And then guess what happens? Verse 35 of 2 Kings 19. It came to pass on a certain night that the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when people arose early in the morning, there were the corpses all dead. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went away, returned home, and remained at Nineveh. By the way, that's also in Isaiah 37, exact same story, exact same. Why is that important? Because they got right up to getting to the place where they might destroy the people of Judah. God said, no way. It ain't happening. Boom. 185,000 dead like that. (laughs) I mean, don't mess with God's people in that sense. God has a heart for his people. Isn't that beautiful? Okay, so you keep going. Look at this. Go down to verse... 28, and then turn it to Philistia. See, Philistia is the place where the Gaza Strip is now. You know what the Gaza Strip is? It's right there on the coast. You see it there? If you can turn it there, uh, that'd be great. But it's right there with these, these little cities. Philistia. This is the burden, verse 28, which came in the year that King Ahaz died. See? That's why you need this little guy. King Ahaz, by the way, I have more of my uh, book right there. I copied these last week for people if you want one. If you don't, that's okay too. But when King Ahaz died, this happened. Don't rejoice, Philistia, because the rod that struck you is broken. For out of the serpent's roots will come forth a viper, and its offspring will be a fiery flying serpent. You know what happened? (laughs) They were so excited because some... uh, 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 People or a group uh, uh, had come against them and they had been uh, knocked out or conquered and they were jumping up and down. Yay! That's so fantastic. And what God is saying here is not so fast, my friend. Not so fast here because one's going to be born out of them, uh, out of that uh, instrument of judgment that's going to uh, come and knock you out. So, uh, Philistia, we, we see, was wiped out uh, by war and by famine. Look down in verse 30. The firstborn of the poor will feed and the uh, needy will lie down in safety and I'll kill your roots. And this happened. Assyria, when they were doing their thing, came down in there one time and just uh, ravaged the place. Now, why is this place important? Why is this place important? Why is this piece of land important? Of course, it's important because it's God's pe- uh, uh, God's uh, chosen 
place or chosen city, right? But just from a practical standpoint, look, it's on the ocean, the sea, and all the military powers are up there and to the right, but guess where the other military power is? Uh, down there to the left where it says Sinai, Egypt. And so whoever controls this area has really got a great leg up. You see that? Okay. So uh, they, they fight over uh, Philistia, and again, Assyria comes. A smoke from the north, verse 31, Assyria comes and wipes them out. F- f- the Philistines were always... Uh, who was a Philistine? Yeah, Goliath. Philistines were always uh, enemies of God and, uh, again, threatened the house of Judah. See that? Okay, go on. Boy, we're moving fast now. Look at this. Now, there's a proclamation now against Moab. Who here from the youth group can tell us who Moab is? What's that? A child. Uh, Moab was the descendants of Lot's incestuous relationship right? Genesis 19. He's one of the sons. I think it's Moab. Is it Ammon? Yeah, I think it's Ammon, right? And uh, uh, that's who these people are. And look where they lived. You see where they lived? They lived below and to the uh, east of the uh, Dead Sea or right there to the Dead Sea. That's where they lived, right? And there's this proclamation that comes up against them. In the night, air of Moab is laid waste and destroyed because in the night, the capital city, that's Kerr, is laid waste and destroyed. He's gone up to the temple and Debon to the high places to weep. Moab will wail over these places. On all their heads will be baldness. And we know that, um, uh, that uh, Assyria, again, came against Moab, came against Moab and uh, wiped them out or, yeah, wiped them out. Do you remember? This is where uh, the king of Moab, Balak, remember him? And uh, hires this guy named Balaam, a false prophet, to curse Israel. And what does Balaam do? He introduces uh, idol worship and uh, uh, fornication into the, uh, uh, the people of God. Remember that? So God remembered this. But very interestingly, you want to see God's grace? All right, I've got to wake you guys up. I'm going to start clapping. Very interestingly, who's, the, who's probably the most famous Moabitess? Yes. And she's where in the Bible? In the genealogy of Jesus Christ? You see how graceful and merciful God is? There's always hope if you'll repent and follow him. Isn't that beautiful? Okay, so anyway, uh, there's a, uh, this, this um, proclamation against Moab. And then when you move to chapter 16... Moab's going to be destroyed. Look at this. Send the lamb to the ruler of the land, verse 1, from Selah to the wilderness, to the mount of the daughter of Zion, for it shall be as a wandering bird thrown out of its nest. Uh, out of its nest. So shall be the daughters of Moab, all the fords of Arnon. Now listen. Take counsel, execute judgment, make your shadow like the night in the middle of the day. Hide the outcasts. Now this gets really interesting. Don't go to sleep here. Do not betray him who escapes. Let my outcasts dwell with you, O Moab. Where is Moab? What's its modern-day country? Anybody know? Jordan. Jordan, right? And we know that uh, in, the, in the, um, the near fulfillment, 
right? There were some people. God was calling on Moab to hide some people of, of Judah. Uh, and then later here, he calls on Judah to be uh, uh, hospitable to people who are hiding in Moab. But what do we know from Matthew? Uh, what do we know from the book of Matthew? We know that um, uh, Jesus says, when the abomination, listen to this, when the abomination of desolation happens, what does he say? He says, flee, flee to the mountains and the rocks. Remember that? And some people, and actually you can see in Revelation 12, 16, and Revelation 12, 13, so 13 through 16, you see that same uh, uh, um, idea taking place in the middle of the tribulation, okay? So what am I talking about? All right, time out. You guys look at me like I'm, uh, uh, you know, with a blank face, and that's okay. So here's a little bit of a timeline uh, a little bit of a prophetic timeline. Prophetic timeline is this, that we live in the church age and there's no, nothing uh, that needs to happen that must happen for the Lord to come back in the clouds, 1 Thessalonians 4, and catch up his church. That's the rapture. And then after that begins a seven-year period of tribulation when God pours out his wrath on a Christ-rejecting world. And in the middle of that, something happens called the abomination of desolation in which the Antichrist sets him up in the temp- sets himself up in the temple and basically says, worship me. And Jesus says, when that happens, run, because it's about to get really bad. And some people believe that these verses right here, in conjunction with Revelation 12, are talking about going and hiding in the rocks or the mountains of Petra. Many people will talk to you about that. Well, this is some of the place where they get that, okay? All right. Why did God judge them? Look at this. I want you to see this in verse 6. When you're reading through these, 13 through 23, you should be asking yourself, well, why? What did they do? And I've been trying to point those out to you as we go. Babylon, listen, Assyria was the most ruthless maybe kingdom of all time. They made the Romans look like uh, kindergartners. Yeah, that was funny. You're right. They made the Romans look like kindergartners. The Assyrians did. And the Babylonians were very difficult. But they, uh, also, but they you know, built all these great cities and wealth and, and power. And Moab was kind of like that. The, the wealthy, religious folks of the day. Well, anyway... Um, here, in this particular instance, and I, I just lost my train of thought if you couldn't tell, but anyway, in verse 6 right here, we've heard of the pride of Moab. The pride of Moab. You know, I'm reading that, and I'm going, this week, I'm going, okay. Well, tell me a little bit more about this, Lord. And other than, what, of course, what we know from uh, Numbers, etc., and some other places, and of course, you know, introducing fornication and idols is really bad. But he just says right here, look, because of the pride of Moab, this is coming. Which, you know, me being a prideful guy and all, I'm thinking to myself as I'm reading this, Lord, is that really that big a deal? Guess what? It is really that big a deal. It is really that big a deal. He hates pride. He, he hates pride. And... So here, 
Oh, by the way, you can also read about what the pride of Moab was in a little bit more detail in Jeremiah 48, 1 through 13. But they, he's very proud. His haughtiness, his pride, and his wrath, but his lies shall not be so. I wonder, when, when was the last time? Oh, man, for me, I'm pointing the finger at me. But when was the last time you prayed and I prayed, Lord, rid me of my pride? And now if you pray that, what happens? You get in a situation where your pride gets attacked. You ever been in a situation where that happens? How do you feel? How dare they say that to me? Don't they know blah, 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 blah. Right? Wow. So anyway, God hates pride. May he keep us in here humble and teachable and lovable. All right, keep going on. What happens now? Well, uh, verses 9 through 12, it's very fascinating. You can read this later. Isaiah actually weeps for Moab. He weeps for Moab. You believe this? The enemies of God. He weeps for Moab. Keep going on. Go to verse 17. This is a proclamation against Syria and Israel. Where are we with Syria? Do we have that up there? Syria and Israel. Well, when you know Syria and Israel, Damascus. Yeah, there we go. Aram. Aram in the Bible. See? Uh, you see that little bit, bit of water right there is the Sea of Galilee. Down below is the Dead Sea, so you can kind of orient yourself. And Damascus is up there. You can actually go, and when we go in uh, uh, September, when we go in September, you go right up to the Syrian border. It's awesome. There's a two-mile um, demilitarization zone, and you just stand up there, and you can see, you can see all the United Nations trucks and everything, and uh, anyway, it's fascinating to see. There's a line right there. Well, anyway, uh, is, uh, Isaiah got a burden against Damascus or Syria. See, because they were trying to coax Judah into joining Assyria, right? To, to join Assyria, while Syria and Israel, you see, this Syria and Israel are connected. Syria and Israel, the northern kingdom, are connected. And um, other. Uh, those two, Syria and Israel, are trying to, you know, uh, bid with Judah, but Assyria is trying to get Judah to be on their side. So it's kind of like a, a real mess here. Anyway, uh, Damascus is going to cease from being a city. That's what it says in the first line there. Now, let me ask you something. Have you looked in the news today? Is Syria still or is Damascus still standing? Yeah. Here, God's word says Syria or Damascus will cease to be a city. So in the near, uh, uh, you know, the near and the far here, there were some things that happened where they uh, got wiped out. It, uh, the Assyrians took Damascus in 732 B.C. And it was, a, did you catch that? The Assyrians took Damascus, or excuse me, the Assyrians took Syria or Damascus in 732 B.C. And if you know your dates... It was like a warning shot to the northern kingdom 10 years later. Beef up, you know, depend on the Lord, get back to the Lord. And they didn't do it. And 10 years later, they were wiped out by the Assyrians. You see that? But in the far view, some people believe that in order for the end times to take place, Damascus must be gone. 
based on that verse. You see that? Because it's, it's still here. It's still uh, operating. So there's a far and a near uh, a view of what's happening right there. Well, it'll be a ruinous heap, etc. And verse 3, the fortress will cease from Ephraim. That's the northern kingdom. But go down to verse 6. I want to always show you this. I know I'm jumping around a lot. You're going to fill it in by reading. See, there's the word there again. Yet. Yet. Yet gleaning grapes will be left in it, like the shaking of an olive tree. Two or three olives at the top of the uppermost bough. You see that? In other words, there's going to even be a remnant in all of this. Northern kingdom, the northern kingdom, and even the Assyrians, there's going to be people who are going to have the opportunity, and they will turn back to the Lord. See that? Yet, gleaning grapes. There even be four or five in its most fruitful branches, says the Lord God of Israel. And in that day, a man will look to his maker. How do you avoid judgment? (laughs) You turn to the maker you turn to the one. Why? Because you, verse 8, were looking at altars, the work of your hands. You, you won't respect what his fingers have made, nor the women wooden image, nor the incense altars. In other words, it's foolish to look to idols. You, you get that? It's foolish to look to idols. And I don't think you should be bored right here. <laughs> I know you are, but I don't think you should. <laughs> and here's why. Because Americans are the leading country in the world with idols. We just don't have little wooden things. No, we have things with steering wheels that we idolize. And we have relationships that we idolize. And see, whatever we idol, see that, you know how I can tell I'm going to give you a litmus test to tell you, and you think about it, and then you jot something down, or maybe don't, but think about it. I want you to think of the one thing that you couldn't live without and that would cause you emotionally just to be uncontrollable. Think about that. What would it be? What would it be? Of course, there's nothing against being sad or anything like that. Uh, how about your phone? How about your phone? Oh, I've seen people when they lose their phone, man. Oh, my goodness. It's like the whole world's come crashing down. I once had that experience in, the, uh, in Los Angeles. But anyway, <laughs> and my son in, in class in Pennsylvania found it for us by pinging it. But anyway, Right? Or how about a relationship? Or how about a career? Or how about a car? Or how about a home? Or, or whatever. What, what is it that, that you couldn't live without? And you know what? I'm just praying for all of us, starting with me first. Not, I'm not pointing my fingers. Wouldn't it be just great if we, the only thing we could say right there is just our relationship with the Lord? The relationship with the Lord. That's, the, that's what we want more than anything. Of course, the other things are good. They're not bad. But what happens is, is when we love something more than the Lord, see, whatever it is, a relationship, you know, a son or a daughter or, you know, a parent or uh, whatever, guess what? They're going to fail you sometime. 
a car, something's going to fail you sometime. It's not going to go in the right way. And when that happens, see, it can shatter your whole world. There's nothing wrong with any of those things that we've mentioned, but when they're in the wrong place, and here he says it's foolishness. It's foolishness to uh, not look at your maker, but look at your idols. <laughs> it could even be, right, our education and our lifestyle and our images, all these things. Okay. Okay, so that is a proclamation against Syria and Israel. Well, this is an interesting one. There's a proclamation against Ethiopia. <laughs> in the King James Version, it's called Cush. A proclama- Do we have that? I don't know if we have that one. Oh, look at, you. Look, at, look at this. These guys are on top of it. Okay, so Israel's up to the right, top right up there. There's Egypt, the Sinai Peninsula, and there's Ethiopia, right? And it's close. It's close to, to Israel. Well, woe to the land shadowed with buzzing wings, verse 1. Most people think that means uh, uh, diplomatic, political, commercial, all kinds of activity. Oh, military activity. It says here, woe to the land shadowed with buzzing wings. All this activity. You send ambassadors, verse 2, by the sea, even in vessels of reed. Go swift messengers to a nation, tall and smooth of skin, to a people terrible from their beginning onward, a nation powerful and treading down whose land the rivers divide. uh, he, he, what's, what's going on here, and you're going to see something here in a minute that's really interesting, is the Assyrians are bothering the Ethiopians because they know if they get Assyria, or excuse me, Ethiopia, man, now they have a real headway into Egypt, of course. And so uh, many in the near here think it's talking about that. But look at this. I want you to see this. The country is buzzing with activity. Look what God's doing in verse 4. Look what God's doing in verse 4. Does this sound like right now? In verse 4, For the Lord said to me, Isaiah, I'll take my rest, and I'll look for my dwelling place like clear heat and sunshine, like a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest. For before the harvest, when the bud is perfect and the sour grape is ripening, he will both cut off the sprigs with pruning hooks. In other words, he was saying, you're so worried about Assyria... But God was saying, I'm not worried. <laughs> I'm just waiting till they ripen, and we'll get them, or I'll get them, I'll get them. God was in control. Isn't that amazing? He's in control. He, we think, he, you know, you might think to yourself when you're praying about COVID, maybe some of us are thinking to ourselves as we're praying about COVID, man, Lord, I know this took you by surprise, and I know you're up there wringing your hands, and you're so worried about how this is all going to just take place. Well, here what it says is, no, no, he's taking his rest, looking down. Everything's under control. He's not nervous. He's not upset. He's not wringing his hands. He knows what's happening. And he's waiting for the right time. And then it also, again, uh, uh, talks about verse 6. Most people believe that's a reference there to uh, what I read you when the angels uh, came and destroyed 185,000. But whatever, that's a proclamation against Ethiopia. Now a proclamation, chapter 19, against Egypt. Egypt. This was probably fulfilled when Egypt was conquered by the king of Assyria in 670 B.C. 670 B.C., he said here, uh, the Lord rides on a swift cloud and is going to come into Egypt. 
The idols of Egypt are going to totter in his presence, and his heart will melt in its midst, and I'm going to set Egypt against Egyptians like a civil war. I could eat, do you see that? The Lord could even use a civil war for his purposes. Isn't that amazing? A civil war for his purposes. Man, something's buzzing up here. What is that? There's a projector over there? Well, why is that making a noise? Anyway, okay. All right. Okay. Well, anything, anyway, lots of things would happen to Egypt. You could read about all that. And in that day, what? Now, it gets real fascinating. I know you're bored. I know you're hot. I know you want Alice Cone's own. But if you miss this, man, you, you, uh, this, is, this is amazing. Look at this. In that day, in what day? Probably the last days. Egypt will be like women and will be afraid and fear because of the waving of the hand of the Lord of hosts, which he waves over it. And the land of Judah will be a terror to Egypt. Everyone who makes mention of it will be afraid in himself because of the counsel of the Lord. In that day, verse 18, five cities in the land of Egypt will speak the language of Canaan. What? Did you catch that? And... Um, uh, swear by the Lord of hosts. One will be called city of destruction. And in that day, there's going to be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land. And it'll be for a sign for a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. They're going to cry to the Lord because of oppressors. And he'll send them a savior and a mighty one. Are you catching this? This is Egypt, Assyria, and Israel. Northern kingdom. Watch this. Then the Lord, verse 21, will be known to Egypt, and the Egypts will know the Lord. Egyptians are going to know the Lord. Do you know how full of idols and gods they were? And will make sacrifice and offering. Yes, they will make a vow to the Lord and perform it. And the Lord will strike Egypt. He'll strike and heal it, and they'll return to the Lord, and he'll be entreated to them and heal them. And that day, look at this. There's going to be a highway. Can you go to number one? They're talking. But anyway, number one. In that day, there's going to be a highway from Egypt all the way to Assyria. And the Assyrians will come into Egypt and the Egyptians into Assyria. And the Egyptians will serve with the Assyrians. You, if you read the Bible, you can hardly believe this. These are people who hate each other. Those areas hate each other. And Israel's in between. And here it says in those last days... These people somehow, some way, are going to cooperate, they're going to turn, and they're going to come and to, they're going to know the Lord and serve the Lord in some way. They'll be one of three with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the land whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, blessed is Egypt, my people. You catch that? My people. And Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Can you hardly believe it? You think God's got it under control or what? Man, one thing, it, does, it has nothing to do, but we can see how the world can be turned upside down within the matter of almost two weeks, right? Right, turned all the way upside down. Five bucks, Jerusalem fund, somebody. Anyway, okay, number 20. You have this sign against uh, Egypt and Ethiopia. I'm just going to let you read that, Okay. And then this fall of Babylon proclaimed, 21, the burden against the wilderness of the sea. That's Babylon. Now listen, there's two schools of thought on this. This is fascinating. Some believe this is a, uh, a takeover uh, 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 
a fall of Babylon by the Assyrians in 689 BC. There was this fight where Assyria prevailed over the Babylonians. Some believe this is a proclamation talking about when the Medes and Persians, Daniel 5, overthrew Babylon. Many people think it's the latter. But the people who believe it's the 600 BC, Assyrian uh, hitting Babylon, have a really good point. And here's their point. If it was the, you got to really think about this. I want you to know, I see, I want you to know your Bible. That's, that's what I wanted you to know. I really want you to know the Bible. And I want you to be a Berean here. And here you got to really think. If it's the 539, the Medes and the Persians taking uh, or uh, overthrowing the Babylonians, then guess who would be happy? The Jews. You know why they'd be happy? Because guess where they're going? Back to their homeland. But if it's the later date in which the Assyrians beat up the Babylonians, guess who would be kind of sad? Israel, because they're getting closer. <laughs> okay? Look at this in verse 3. <laughs> Here, Isaiah says, My loins are filled with pain. Pangs have taken hold of me like the pains of a woman in labor. I was distressed when I heard it. I was dismayed when I saw it. My heart wavered. Fearfulness frightened me. That night for which I longed, he turned into fear for me. So this is the fall of Babylon. It's separated from the fall of Babylon that we began with. You're going to have to be a Berean there and decide which one you think that is. But he does, again, talk about the fall of Babylon. And one more thing I want to point out. Verse 9 of that chapter is very famous. Babylon is fallen, is fallen. It's actually mentioned by the writer John in Revelation 14.8 and 18.2. And also it's mentioned in Jeremiah. Okay, hold on with me. I promise I got a point. I just got to get through it and you're going to understand the Bible better. And then you're going to go home, and when you read through this, because you won't be here for about another year, <laughs> it's a joke. Me and, Cara have a, me and Cara have a running joke on this. But when you get here next year, when you get here next year, when you're reading through your Bible, you're going to understand this way better, way better. And your faith in God because you're going to see how majestic and grand he is and glorious that he even controls the nations. He controls Russia. You get this? Iraq, he controls. Mexico, he controls. Morocco, <laughs> I'm trying to think of some funny one. <laughs> he controls them all. He holds them in their hands. This isn't a surprise here, this worldwide thing. It's not a surprise. Well, anyway, there's a proclamation against Edom. Go there if you can, please. And here's where he calls himself a watchman. Remember, he's referred to himself as a watchman. Do you remember that? He, there's a proclamation against Edom. Who was Edom? Anybody know? Or who's Edom? Who does Edom come from? Esau and Jacob. Yay! Good. Esau and Jacob. And you're going to see, even now, it's still warring against, the, they're still warring against themselves. All this time later, Esau and Jacob, remember this? 
He calls to me out of Seir, watchman, what of night? Watchman, what of the night? The watchman said, the morning comes and also the night. And if you'll inquire, inquire, return and come back. You catch it? There's always a time to come back. Even Edom could come back. Even Edom could come back. Well, uh, the morning comes and also the night. Assyria would be defeated, 722 or excuse me, 539 B.C., but, uh, you know, there would be a Babylon. Sorry, not 539, but Assyria would be defeated by the Babylonians, but Babylonians would also be defeated. Do you know that? And the Persians would take over them, and this is important for your Bible learning. Persia changed the name from Edom to Idumea. And why do you mind saying that's, why is that important? Because remember, in Jesus' time, Herod was a, Idumean. Herod was an Idumean. He was one of these folks. Here's where he came from. Got it? The the Tetrarchs of the time. They were from this dynasty, from these people. Okay. Proclamation against Arabia. Arabia is the Gulf of Arab and the the Arabian Strait down there. And you can see this uh, uh, proclamation. In the forest in Arabia, you'll lodge. They're going to hide from Assyria. And Assyria Sargon of Assyria took that Arabian peninsula in 716 B.C., and the Arabian tribes were defeated. You could read about that right there. Now a proclamation against Jerusalem, 22. Oh, man. Some of you in here read this book. It's near and dear to my heart. I was just praying it for you folks. I was praying for you. I was praying out of this book. It's called The Valley of Vision. You ever heard of The Valley of Vision? It comes from right here. Here's where it comes from. What's the Valley of Vision? The Valley of Vision is Jerusalem. Why is it called the Valley of Vision? Because Jerusalem's up on a hill, and guess what surrounds it? Three valleys. Three valleys. And the first prayer of the Puritan prayers is the Valley of Vision prayer, which is, Lord, may you... Listen to this prayer. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. May you keep me in the depths so I can see how high you are. Ay, ay, ay. I don't think any American ever has prayed that one. No, we've prayed, hey, Lord, get me up there with you and maybe even more rich. That's what we pray. But anyway, this is the Valley of Vision, the burden against the Valley of Vision, the proclamation against Jerusalem. And what ails you that you've all gone up to the housetops, right? A tumultuous city, a joyous city. And you could read through this. Uh, it was joy and gladness. But look, you've got all the way down to verse 13. What was Jerusalem and Judah like at the time that these were uh, uh, Babylon and, uh, excuse me, Assyria first and then Babylon took it? But instead, joy and gladness, verse 13, slaying oxen and killing sheep, eating meat and drinking wine, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. That was the philosophy before the exile. That was the philosophy. Guess whose philosophy that is? (laughs) United States. That's the United States. Well, anyway, uh, then it was revealed in my heart or in my hearing by the Lord of hosts, surely for this iniquity there will be no atonement for you, even to your death, says the Lord God of hosts. What's the uh, only unforgivable sin? The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, rejecting the Holy Spirit? Okay. Judgment of Shebna. These are the leaders. You could go back in Second Kings. He was like the chief of staff of the house of one of the great kings, I think Hezekiah. And it talks about how these leaders were very difficult. Uh, or th- and, and he's a picture of uh, not uh, doing what the Lord requires of him. But then look at this in verse 20. Then it shall be in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, 
He was the over the house of Hezekiah, 2 Kings 18. This guy was, and I will clothe him with your robe, and he'll be like a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. In other words, it was important to have good leaders. When your leaders break down, they're not godly anymore. They're not doing, uh, working hard for the Lord. <laughs> the whole place deteriorates. And I want you to just see one thing very quickly, and we'll, we'll go quickly here. Look at this in verse 24. What, what was, what, what, how would they describe Eliakim? How about if somebody described you like this? Jan, you know what? You're really a sturdy peg fastened to the wall. Honey, you're just such a beautiful sturdy peg fastened to the wall. And that's what they said about Eliakim because why? Because everybody could hang on him. They could put their burdens on him. People, when they were tired and weary, could come to this guy and they could unload and they could find rest. Are you catching it? That's how godly he was. You read it right there in 21. They'll hang on him all the glory of his father's house, the offspring and the posterity, all vessels of small quantity from the cups to all the pitchers. He, he, he was a peg. Many people could hang their burdens on. You know what the Lord Jesus did? He fastened himself to a cross. And all, was put, all of our stuff was put on him. You see it? Well, anyway, in that day, says the Lord of hosts, the peg that is fastened in the secure place will be removed and cut down and fall, and the burden that was on it will be cut, for the Lord has spoken. Babylon's going to overtake them. Final one, Tyre. You beat me to it? No, next one, Tyre. It's up north. I'm not going to read you this whole thing, except for verse 9. Look at this. The Lord of hosts has purposed it to bring dis to dishonor the pride of all glory. Again, there it is, the pride of Tyre. The Lord hates pride. Look down in verse 13. The land of the Chaldeans, the people, this people which was not. Look, Tyre, right there. Look at Cyprus out there. Tyre, though. Tyre had a little island off the coast, right off the coast there, not very far. You know this story? Yeah, this is fascinating. And what happened was, is that uh, the Babylonians came and laid siege to that city, Tyre. Thirteen years, guess what they did? They surrounded the city inland, and they tried to squeeze them, and they couldn't understand why they wouldn't give up. You know why they wouldn't give up? Because they built these ships real quick, and they sailed out with, under the noses of these people all the way out to this little island, and they survived out there. So while this prophecy came true, Tyre was wiped out, the Tyre people went out to the island and lived there, and the Babylonians didn't have shipbuilding capabilities, so they looked and went, hmm, and they left after 13 years. But guess what? 500 years later, guess who went and conquered them? Alexander the Great, when the Greeks came in, Alexander the Great. Anyway, so Tyre was wiped out. Okay, look at this. You can read the rest of this, verse, chapter 23. This, I hope, will give you a perspective on these 10 chapters. But I want you to take away from tonight these things, and then we'll pray, and you can get on to your ice cream. I like this ice cream. Is this. God is never caught off guard. 
I wonder what you're going through right now. You're going through something really difficult, really tough. You feel like you're squeezed. You feel like you're dry. I don't know what it is. I, I, I can't say I know what it is, but God's not caught off, caught off guard by it. He knows what you're going through. That's comforting. He knows he's there. He's resting, watching, caring for, loving you, but he's bringing you through something for some reason. You're his people. You're his people. And it shows us how grand and mighty and glorious God is. You know when people in this pandemic keep saying, oh yeah, God's sovereign? Yeah, it's good to say that, but it's better to know it. See, that's the point. And that's what these 10 chapters can help you with. It's great to say it, but it's better to know it. What does it mean that God's sovereign? If God's sovereign, why do I have to stay in my house? Why do I have to wear a mask? But see, God is sovereign. And he uses all these circumstances for our good and for our betterment and to make us even more Christ-like. It even says here several times that he's purposed these things. He's purposed these things. In other words, there's a purpose for these things. How about this? When the world news is frightening, you know what you could do for yourself to preach to yourself? Read the Psalm, second, second Psalm, and read what I'm about ready to read with you in Acts 4, verses 23 through 32. And being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God Lord, or with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth see all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, why did the nations rage and the people plot in vain? That's, you know what that is, right? It's... Um, Psalm 2. And the kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against you, your holy servant Jesus, whom you appointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke of word of God with boldness. You, you see what I'm trying to say here? He just quoted in his prayer, Psalm 2, and he pled the sovereignty of God to the Lord. And these people who already had the Holy Spirit residing within them were filled with the Lord. And what, what was it for? Witnessing and boldness out in the marketplace or out in the world. You see this? You know, what we need in the Christian church isn't more knowledge. <laughs> I mean, I want to give you the knowledge, knowing the Bible, sure. But what we need is a filling of the Holy Spirit. That's what we need. Why do you think churches are dead? Because they deny that the Holy Spirit is real and active and powerful and alive. There's a whole strain of Christians that want to deny that the Holy Spirit's for today. You know, they say, that's not fair. They, we all believe that... Uh, uh, the Holy Spirit's in our hearts, but there's no filling of the Holy Spirit. But then, 
There's some on the other side of the aisle who abuse the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and it makes it wacky and weird and white, you know, just out of control. And why can't it just be a balance? We need the power of the Holy Spirit to live this life. How are we going to impact these little people? How many people in here? 30 people, whatever's in here, I don't know. How are we going to, these little people, impact people tomorrow in our jobs, in our work, in our homes? How are we going to do it? It's not by more knowledge, just having brain knowledge. It's by a filling of the Holy Spirit. I'm, I'm convinced. I'm convinced of it. So that, when the world news is frightening, go read Psalm 2 and read Acts 4 and pray for a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit. Right? We can be bold. God hates sin. God always gives a word of promise and of hope. And God tells us never to fear. I get it, folks. We didn't have any idea what we were dealing with here. We should have been careful and cautious and good citizens. And we were. And all of you are and were. Yet, God doesn't give us a spirit of fear. What a better time, a greater time to ask the Lord to fill us afresh so that we could you know, be a light in the darkness. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray right now. I went late, but still plenty of time to you know what. And uh, you can even buy some and put in your freezer. <laughs> some people in here have told me. But here's the deal. If you've never, you don't understand what the filling of the Holy Spirit is, then pray about it and think about it and come talk with us and we'll pray with you also. In the book of Luke, it just says, you know how you get a filling of the Holy Spirit? It's really difficult. You ask. So let's pray. Lord, thanks so much uh, for these people and their hearts to know you. And thank you, Lord, for your word. I know it's a kind of a historical tough piece of scripture. And yet, Lord, when we understand what we've read, oh my, Lord, you're sovereign and good. And you show us that we can pray that prayer, pray your sovereignty. And you, Lord, ask for your Holy Spirit. You'll come and fill us up and you'll use us in your sovereignty for your purposes and your plans. What a blessing, what a privilege. Thank you, Lord. Lord, fall on us. Bring us a fresh filling, each one of us, of your Holy Spirit so that we would be renewed and we'd fly up in the air like on eagle's wings, Lord. We'd be refreshed and soar, S-O-A-R. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen.